Hello, everybody. Welcome to Contracts the Climate. I'm here today with three amazing guests, Tabitha Gould, Construction and Engineering Solicitor at Burgess Salmon, Owen Collins, Senior Associate at Matheson's Energy Infrastructure Group, and Isabel Annan, Energy and Environmental Solicitor in Burgess Salmon's Projects Group. And today, the four of us are going to be talking about Aisha's Clause. Aisha's Clause is a clause which obliges stakeholders in renewable energy technology supply chains to lower their carbon emissions, minimise their environmental impact, and, and this is a really, really juicy and interesting bit, I think, do all of that while they are safeguarding against modern slavery. So, before we get into the meat of the clause, I first wanted to ask my guests a few questions. And I was going to start with Tabitha, and I was going to say, what kind of work do you do in your day job in the construction and engineering team? And how did you get into TCLP in the first place? Hi, Becky. Um, yeah, thanks. So I work in construction engineering and I try and mostly work in renewable energy projects as much as I can. I've always been interested in the environment and wanting to try and combat climate change and always wanting to work on projects that strive to achieve net zero. So I do try and work mostly in renewable energy, but sometimes detour into other sectors as well. I became interested in TCLP uh, during the first lockdown, actually. Um, I started going to lots of great webinars on net zero and different webinars about combating climate change. And I heard about TCLP. So I joined one of their sessions and it was just so great to join an online community of like-minded people who wanted to do something to combat climate change and to really try and solve the climate crisis. And whilst we were all sat at home behind our computer screens, it was really nice to feel that I was connected to those people and I could join this network. And it felt that I was doing a little bit in my own very small way to try and help the fight against climate change. And what about you, Erin? What do you do in your day job? And I mean, is your story any different about how you got involved in TCLP? Thanks, Becky. So I'm probably coming at it from a little bit of a different background to Tavi. I would describe myself as an energy lawyer, first and foremost. It's really all that I do. And in particular, I specialize in advising on renewable energy projects. And I've done that for the last five or six years. So things like financing development and construction of renewable energy projects like wind farms and solar farms. So TCLP felt for me like a very natural fit, and it's effectively, it's an area that I work in day in, day out. In terms of how I actually got involved in TCLP, then I am an Irish lawyer practicing in Dublin, and TCLP is relatively new to the Irish market. I first became aware of TCLP around March or April 2021, when I was invited to the second meeting of the TCLP finance working group in the Irish market. Following on from that meeting, I signed up for various TCLP energy-related workshops and given my area of practice, that's how I met Isabel and Tabby and got the opportunity to work on Aisha's Clause. Amazing. And Isabel, what's your backstory? So like Owen, I also specialise in renewable energy projects, uh, but I also do a fair bit of environmental law as well for a range of different clients, uh, not just in the energy sector. Before law, I actually started a community energy project at my university called Solar Soas. So that's how I got into renewable energy as an interest and also how I became a lawyer. And then I found out about TCLP when I was invited to join one of the first drafting sessions during my training contract. And then I signed up for facilitator training to help the firm that I trained at originally integrate the TCLP model clauses that had been published at that point into their precedents. Uh, so I was involved during my training contract. And when I joined Burgess Salmon on qualification, I joined the TCLP team there. 
and signed up to this energy clause drafting session where I met Owen and worked on Aisha's clause with Tabby and Owen. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you all of you for all of your generous time that you've donated to the project. I would like to move on to renewable energy in a bit more detail now. Obviously, we know that renewable energy represents a great alternative to fossil fuels in terms of helping us reduce our greenhouse gases, but meeting the energy needs of the world as it is. So what's the catch? Why is the picture a little bit more complicated than that? I guess when we thought about it, at the end of the day, renewable energy projects are really just construction projects. They are built infrastructure. They're built by people. Their components are sourced by people and they involve necessarily various raw materials. So in respect of any of those items from mining of components to actual construction of the renewable energy project, there are various issues which can arise. And the issues that give companies that are involved in these projects real cause for concern are things like modern slavery being used in the supply chain, or for example, high greenhouse gas emissions or other environmental issues in in respect of the renewable energy project. And modern slavery should really go without saying in terms of why it's an issue. And in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and environmental issues, Clearly, these effectively run completely contrary to the whole purpose of the Renewable Energy Project, and you know, that, that's the problem there. So really what you're saying is that a fantastic solar farm ultimately is just a construction project, and we need to hold it to the same high standards that we would hold any other construction project, and not just say, because it's green, that's fine. Tell me more about the human rights issues, though, because that, that's really interesting and, and obviously slightly worrying. Yeah, so like Owen says, there are more environmentally friendly ways of building the same thing that you could do in a less environmentally friendly way. And there are uh, issues in supply chains in various industries involving modern slavery. In particular, there have been reports of forced labour in the manufacturing of renewable energy generation assets, such as solar panels. And so something that developers might want to really weed out of their supply chains when they're looking at renewable energy projects is making sure that modern slavery is not in the manufacturing of those assets in the same way that other sectors, including fashion, are also tackling the issue of modern slavery around the world. And I think also we just want to make sure that we do want to increase the use of renewable energy. We are all fighting towards climate change, but this shouldn't come at the cost of people and modern slavery or the environment. And I think just honing back in on what Owen was saying as well, we know that renewable energy is great and that's what we're striving towards and we want to stop our reliance on fossil fuels. But building these assets to give us that renewable energy and work towards net zero shouldn't come at the cost of more raw materials being taken away from this planet or more environmental harm being done to this planet or modern slavery being used. And so that's it, it's really a very basic point that we're just trying to get across to supply chains. Absolutely. To ensure a just transition, which is one of the reasons we drafted this clause, we need to ensure the justice and transparency in the supply chain for renewable energy by fixing these issues raised by reports of forced labour in locations where the assets are being manufactured. I think that brings us on to another really critical point, actually, Isabel, is that, you know, I'm somebody who I used to be an outsourcing lawyer. I've worked in supply chains for a very long time. And even back then, they were so long, so complicated. It was very easy to either not see to the end of them or 
And I just wonder, Owen, can you talk to me a little bit more about that for the, the benefit of our listeners and, and to get my knowledge back up to speed? Yeah, Becky, you're absolutely correct. I mean, supply chains really are so complicated these days and, and increasingly so. And because they're so complicated, it, it can really truly be very difficult for companies at the end of the line. And in the case of a, a wind farm, let's say that's the person building the project or maybe even the person buying the power from the project to be aware of issues that may be present down the line. So for example, maybe modern slavery being used in the mining of a component that is used in the manufacturing of a PV panel. And unless those end users are aware of the issues, they really can't do much to resolve them. There's a lot of focus in this area in the last few years, and, and it is something that, that these companies are increasingly focused on doing. But you know, it, I think it should go without saying that a root and branch review and an assessment of your global supply chain isn't something that you can just do overnight. It takes many months and many years and that that's a process that is underway at the moment for many companies as they're assessing their global supply chain. While it is hard for companies to ensure that there are fewer pollution issues and human rights issues in their global supply chain, it's important to face that the adoption of renewables is currently hindered by the lack of transparency in these supply chains. And another thing that this clause wanted to tackle was the lack of a legal framework or any international standards for producing these renewable energy generating assets. I suppose as well, it almost goes into, I hesitate to say greenwashing, but if you have a company that is saying, look at us, we're doing all this amazing stuff with solar energy, that company then doesn't want to have to turn around and say, oh, but all of our solar panels were made using conflict minerals or modern slavery or the, the carbon footprint of the uh, built structure of the solar farm itself is going to take the solar farm 50 years of operation to pay off in terms of the carbon invested in it and all of that sort of thing. So it's really sort of giving, I suppose, companies that ability to put their money where their mouth is or, or show their values. Can you tell me a little bit more actually about the thought process behind the drafting of Aisha's clause generally? So the thought behind it was that if parties were contractually obliged to monitor and fix any problems uh, that we've mentioned today and reduce the risk of human rights or pollution issues in their renewable energy supply chain, it would then be so much easier for counterparties to audit compliance and obtain any contractual remedies for non-compliance. And this then would lead to greater transparency and greater uptake of renewable energy. Uh, that's why we've combined the issues of pollution, GHG emissions and modern slavery in this clause. I love that because it's sort of saying, isn't it, that you don't have to have one at the cost of the other. You, you can't, you, it's not that you're saying you can have a green revolution, but it comes at the cost of people being in modern slavery. Absolutely. And when it came to the drafting of the clause, then it's probably worth saying, Becky, that we, we faced a number of issues that were really quite tricky and uh, the, the first really was how can we ensure that we get our counterparties to, to agree or how, how can companies ensure that they get their counterparties to agree to this clause and also to pass it down the line as needs be. So we're talking a lot of the time here about issues with companies or individuals that you don't have a direct contractual relationship with, so a subcontractor of some sort. And how can we ensure that our contractors pass down the obligations to their subcontractors in a way that is robust and meaningful? Another issue that we faced as we began drafting the clause was, you know, what actually is the scope of this clause? We were quite clear that it should apply to, say, the sourcing of components used for a wind farm or a solar farm, for example. But if those components themselves were made up of various raw materials, well, does the mining of those materials, uh, is that something which falls within the scope of this clause? Because, of course, you have to draw the line somewhere. And then the second point on that was you know, how far down the line does this does the clause look, right? For example, if we are dealing with the mining of a component that is used in a PV manufacturing process, 
are we really concerned about, for example, services contracts to that mining company? Or is that maybe a step too far and something that, that really just isn't workable or maybe practical in, in, in a meaningful sense? So that, that was another big issue that we, we had to face as we went through the clause. I think that's really interesting. And it, I think actually, Owen, it kind of speaks back to your earlier point about how complicated these supply chains are. If somebody is saying, we can't put a clause in that absolutely 100% guarantees that there is no slavery at all anywhere in our supply chain, then what are you really saying? That you're okay with there maybe being a bit of slavery somewhere in your supply chain, that you're actually maybe okay with a bit of human rights abuses, or that how did we manufacture a, a system which was so complicated that you couldn't find out and you had to kind of exist in this limbo of, of it's like Schrodinger's modern slavery. There might be some there, there might not, we don't know, we're not sure. That's exactly the issue and, and it's kind of a legacy issue I would say in the sense that we have found ourselves in a situation where that structure, those supply chains are in place at the moment and companies are really trying to untangle in many ways the complication to really get down to the bottom of what, what is going on you know, in, in the depths of my supply chain and, and what, what visibility do I have and therefore what control do I want to exert over what, what is happening there. So without further ado, how did the clause turn out? We're quite proud of the clause. Um, it, in the end, it obliges developers, manufacturers, installers, contractors, or any party involved in the renewable energy technology sector, including the transporting of it, the mining of it, the manufacturing of it, and anyone down the supply chain, to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions and environmental pollutions that are caused in the manufacturing and installation of those renewable energy assets, and ensure that no forced labour or modern slavery is used. It also aligns with the do no harm principle and social safeguards set out in the EU taxonomy. I think one good thing that comes from the clause, well, it's all great, but an interesting point that comes from it that could be quite easily implemented is disclose the names of the companies and the location of those companies that are involved throughout the manufacturing process. So you can kind of do your own due diligence on it. And we do, in, we do reference the due diligence questionnaire in the clause that could be used for that. And I think that's a really interesting point that you can then, you can always go behind the contractor and, and double check if you are concerned about any of the supply chain not adhering to those standards. Fantastic. So can you just run me through the key selling points of the clause? If there's a lawyer out there listening who thinks I might want to use that, that sounds in interesting. That sounds, I've got a client who might be up for that. What's your pitch to them? One of the key things is its flexibility and where it can be used. It can be used in pretty much any supply chain contracts. We're obviously talking about renewable energy assets here, but it could be applied to any production line and just obviously change the wording slightly. But yeah, it can be incorporated in the energy market, can be incorporated into power purchase agreements, heads of terms documents, design and build contracts, any sort of construction contracts looking down the supply chain. And of course, just your supply agreements and your sale and purchase agreements. So I think the flexibility is a really key point of it. And also, you know, we shouldn't have to advocate for no modern slavery being used down the supply chain. <laughs> I feel like that point does speak for itself. And does the clause presume any sort of existing level of buy-in, do you think? I don't necessarily think so. I think going back to what Tabby mentioned, the, the clause is really very flexible. So any company that is, is interested in assessing its supply chain and understanding it better to prevent, sorry, to identify and to prevent these types of issues can, can really pop it into their contract quite readily. And if there is something specific to their circumstances, which means that they need to adapt it in some way, shape or form to limit it, to expand it, the clause is flexibly drafted so that that can be done quite easily. So whether you're a very sophisticated, advanced company looking to better understand the supply chain 
or maybe this is something that is quite new to you, I, th I think it's all worth looking into and that the clause is, is quite flexible in that regard. So I think that's given us kind of a really good introduction to Aisha's clause, but I would like to dig a little bit more deeply into the just transition generally. Isabel, how can lawyers support a just transition in their work generally? Yeah, this is a really important question. I always encourage any lawyer to join TCLP events and look at now it's a really, really long list of model clauses actually that TCLP have published. I think lawyers can work with TCLP and their clients to integrate climate change, labour and just transition thinking into their contracts and the deal considerations earlier on as well. Also, lawyers can push their firms to become more environmentally friendly. And I think as lawyers, we're also really well placed to feed into relevant consultations or working groups with bodies like the Law Society, Justice and UKLA, the UK Environmental Law Association. I also wanted to add to your list, actually, and say that whilst this is a TCLP um, podcast, there is another organisation called the ABA Model Contract Clauses, which can be found on the American Bar Association website. They do what we do with climate and they do it specifically with human rights in contracts and clauses. And so for anybody else out there who is also interested in these issues, they may be another fantastic source of clauses and ideas for you to look at. But I'm going to pivot back to climate now and say, what are you all planning to do next for the climate? I think I'll continue learning about the key issues affecting the just transition, energy law and environmental law, and working with my firm and its clients to integrate TCLP modern clauses into contracts. I'm also going to continue working on my community energy project and encouraging others to join their local community energy group. Something I've been doing uh, since my training contract is volunteering for a group called the Legal Response Initiative. They're a nonprofit who volunteer and provide free legal advice for small island nations and developing nations at the UNFCCC negotiations. So at these climate conferences, often the nations who are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change are those with the least legal resource to represent their views at these climate negotiations. So what the LRI does is really important in providing that legal support on any queries and also being there at the conferences to support on the ground. Uh, so I'd like to continue volunteering for them. Amazing. And from my perspective, then, the main thing I think that I can do uh, and, and will continue to do is, is to support my clients from a legal perspective in achieving the renewable energy just transition. I'm really very, very lucky to be involved in some innovative projects in the Irish market, things like corporate biomethane offtake agreements, corporate power purchase agreements, 24-7 electricity matching agreements, things that are really pushing the boundaries and will make, I think, quite a tangible and big difference to the just transition and, and the renewable energy transition. So my role, as I see it, is to support our clients on, on that journey. Fantastic. And Tabby? I think for me, one of the key things that I've learned since being involved with TCLP and just being more generally involved in initiatives like TCLP is how important education is to making sure that everybody is aware of how critical this issue is, that we don't have much time. We do need to sort this out now. So I've been helping to provide internal training sessions at my firm about what net zero really <coughs> means to us as lawyers and also our clients and that you know, people really need to start thinking about this now and put these clauses into their contracts. I'm also involved in helping create a new network, which is being set up by the Legal Sustainability Alliance, the LSA. And it's looking at new lawyers or those new to the profession, you know, recent qualifiers or trainees or 
people just coming back to the profession or anything really to build a network where we can kind of speak to each other, engage with each other, talk about these issues, discuss how we're addressing them in each of our firms, what more we can do as a society of lawyers to try and tackle climate change and really bring it to the forefront of our clients' attentions. And I think, you know, that's going to be a really great forum um, and network for all lawyers to really join and help become more educated on the issues and spread the word to others and get more involved in things like Chancery Lane Project. I think it's been such a great initiative and I'm really proud to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you all of you, Tabby, Isabel and Owen, for coming on this show. I think it's really, really interesting and really, really important for people to hear the story behind the clauses and how they can use them and really get to grips with the issue. I think it makes it really come alive. And so I really appreciate all three of you taking the time to do this. There will be links in the show notes, contact details for Tabby, Isabel, Owen and TCLP generally. Don't forget, in earlier episodes, I've talked about our Climate Clause Selector tool, and we'll have some links to that as well, which is a really, really new way that you can get into our content more easily, more quickly, given there's 110 clauses. It'll really help you navigate it. And thank you again to my producer, Lizzie Mathams, and our editor, Leonard Lee, without whose amazing and tireless work, this podcast would not be possible. We'll see you all next time. I've been Becky Anderson, and it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you.